0: This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In the original Greek text of Matthew, when Jesus warns his disciples, unless you are converted and become like children, his statement calls to mind the Lord's desire in Ezekiel, that the wicked man turn from his path and live. In Ezekiel and Matthew, the Lord, who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, wants his disciples to turn back from their evil path. In Matthew, specifically, the evil path is any action that asserts power over others or causes harm in any way to the weaker brother. So, turn, Jesus exclaims, and become powerless like children. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 1 to 6. This year's Biblical Symposium of the Orthodox Center for the Advancement of Biblical Studies will be held online Saturday, June 13, 2020. Space is limited to 100 attendees, so register today by going to EphesusSchool.org. Father William Mills, author of Losing My Religion, is the featured keynote speaker. Other presenters include the very reverend Dr. Paul Nadim Tarazi, Dr. Nikolai Roddy, professor of Hebrew Bible and Old Testament at Creighton University, and Dr. Richard Benton and Father Mark Boulos of the Bible as Literature podcast. Register today by going to EphesusSchool.org. You're listening to the Bible
1: as Literature.
0: This is Father Mark Bulos, And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 330 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Over the years, we've insisted on a principle of scriptural study, that you can't synthesize the four Gospels. It's incorrect the way people talk about the synoptic Gospels drawing a distinction between the Gospel of John and the other stories. That's a mistake, because you're making huge assumptions about the way Mark, Matthew, and Luke supposedly fit together, pushing John away from the school. All four texts are within the Pauline school. All four texts are making different arguments and addressing different questions within the same school. So you can't, for example, take the Gospel of Mark and put it together with the Gospel of Matthew to create, quote, a story of Jesus. This is literature. There is a reason that you have a Gospel of Matthew and a Gospel of Mark in the same canon produced by the same school of writers. And we have a perfect example of this this morning at the beginning of chapter 18, because the admonition about causing one of the little ones to stumble— in the Gospel of Mark, is addressed specifically to Jerusalem, to the Jerusalem leadership. The problem in Mark is that the religious insiders in Jerusalem look down their nose at the Gentiles. Remember that Mark is rushing to ensure that the Pauline Gospel is preserved against the church for the church, so that they would not exclude the Gentiles from the community. Here in Matthew, you have the story of Jesus as told by Matthew addressed to a predominantly Gentile church. So you have the same admonition about the little ones, the children. But now instead of condemning Jerusalem, Matthew is threatening the Gentiles. Just last
1: night, we had a conversation about Deuteronomy 9 and 10 at Bible study at the Ephesus school. In Deuteronomy, it's talking about the same events as in Exodus and Numbers, but in very different ways. I mean, whereas Exodus takes chapters and chapters to talk about how to make an ark, in Deuteronomy it takes half a verse to talk about making an ark. Some people, when they want to undermine the Bible, talk about these as contradictions. They're only contradictions if you assume, like you said, Father, your program is to come up with a story of Jesus. The goal of reading... The Gospels is not to come up with a story of Jesus. It's to understand the Gospel according to Matthew and then the Gospel according to Mark and so on. We, as the Bible as Literature podcast, want people to be sensitive, want readers of the Gospel to pay attention to the way that each author Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John craft their stories even maybe using materials from another author but they are making their own point mark and matthew do have different points mark is aiming his gospel at a more jewish audience and matthew at a more gentile broader audience this is going to come out when we see how the pericopes are internally structured but then also laid out in the book. I mean, it's important that this section comes in chapter 18 and not in chapter 11. We've said so many times, you read the text in order, you read the flow of the text. It's not okay to read 18 without remembering that we just finished 17. If you want to know how to understand 18, remember that 17 is the context, and it's all about trying to get the disciples to recognize that Jesus was going to be given up to the hand of those who would persecute him and would suffer and die. And this was too much for the disciples to understand, but eventually they started feeling sad. They want God to be this power that they can plug into rather than a will that they have to follow. We need to understand 18 in the context of what we've already said about 17. That's how Literature always works. You're not allowed to read a chapter out of context and understand how that chapter functions, what it means, or what the author is trying to say.
0: In last week's episode, we talked about how Peter was confused about his position within the Roman Empire. How should he respond to Caesar? Should he pay the tax? Or should he assert power against Caesar? And Jesus trained Peter by forcing him to submit to the tax, to rethink Roman hierarchy in terms of the hierarchy of the kingdom. That's a point you started to pick up at the end of last week's show, and it flows beautifully into the beginning of chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, "'Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven?' My first reaction, having listened to chapter 17, as you point out, Rich, is that the question is dead wrong. The question demonstrates that even after having been forced to make himself small before Caesar, Peter and the others are still interested in making themselves great in worldly terms. So this insistence, of Jesus upon a different kind of hierarchy still hasn't sunk in.
1: Wrapping their head around this hierarchy means understanding the basis of the hierarchy, which means the basis of power. Yes, this is the problem. Look how confusing it is for someone with a worldly outlook. Jesus is their teacher who accepts this designation as the Son of Man and even the Son of God. And he says he's going to suffer and be killed at the hands of these people of the world. That sounds like kind of a lousy kingdom. Okay, but keep going. Do we have to pay the tax to Caesar? Can we thumb our nose at him? No, no, don't thumb your nose at him. If Caesar wants you to pay the tax, then pay the tax. Okay, but I thought we were supposed to be greater than those guys. Like, why are we paying their tax? If we're greater than them, we should be able to thumb our nose at them. That's the great thing about being great is you can look down on others. Jesus, in teaching his disciples, keeps coming at them with submission, 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 submission. So what's the point of joining this kingdom? (laughs) Because we're here in the Roman Empire, we have to submit to the Roman Empire, and we're going to join the kingdom of heaven, and we still have to submit to the Roman Empire. I mean, what do we do? This doesn't even look different. This looks like more of the same, and we're hoping, Jesus, you might give us a little something different. What the disciples are having to wrestle with is how the kingdom of heaven, and even the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, look distinctly weak.
0: It's interesting, his choice of words here, the Greek strepho calls to mind a turning akin to the Hebrew word shuv, which means to turn. It also relates to another Greek word that's often used for the same Hebrew term, metania, which means to turn or to repent. And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The translation converted is interesting but problematic, interesting in the sense that when you hear Scripture and change the way that you walk, you are converted, but the way we use the word conversion in English, it's more closely related to proselytization. That is not what Matthew is talking about. It's not about changing the way someone thinks and reprogramming them with a different creed. It's about giving someone a directive so that they literally turn their direction and walk in a different direction. He's asking them to hear the gospel of the crucifixion and the resurrection, which he's been preaching, and to change their direction, literally, to change their direction and to become like children. Thank you, Father, for bringing
1: up the Hebrew, because I think the Hebrew really does help us understand this. The Cool thing about the word shuv is that it means also apostasy. It has everything to do with the path that you're walking. If you're walking on the wrong path and you turn to the right path, that's conversion or even repentance. If you turn from the good path to the bad path, that's apostasy. So it has everything to do with walking in line, even if you want to think of a platoon of soldiers marching. If you get off the path and walk on some other path, that's potential desertion and could be met with dire consequences because you must walk on the path to show that you are loyal and that you're following orders. So the walking is very important, taking it out of the psychological realm of, I think, and so you know, once I start thinking this way and stop thinking that way, then no, it's not about the thinking. It's about which direction your feet are moving. The specific point that they have to be converted on to become as little children, because again, how frustrating must this be to the disciples who want to understand what it means to be great? And then when Jesus gives an example of who is the greatest, he brings a child. The disciples have to sigh again because it's like, okay, we have to pay the tax. Okay, Jesus, our teacher, is going to be mistreated and humiliated and killed. And now we have to be like, children. And how do children live? They get to go and play and do things until it's time to work, and then whoever says, you there, time for you to work, you have to stop doing whatever you're doing and start working. You get no say in the matter. Every child dreams of becoming the king of the world so that people stop telling them what to do. The life of the child is walking in the steps of whatever adult tells them, walk in these steps. So again, it's an image of submission. The disciples wanted greatness, and they got submission.
0: And of course, children are dependent. This is a critical dimension of the child as a metaphor in both Mark and Matthew, because it reflects the Pauline teaching in Galatians about our dependence on God. It's the Pauline teaching about grace, which is so often corrupted into a dismissal of the law, which is incorrect. The law was given to teach you that you're dependent, that you can't achieve anything of your own accord. And children understand this. They're dependent on their parents. It's not about innocence. We've said this before and it bears repeating. It's not about innocence. Because if you're talking about innocence and guilt— you're talking about your judgment in a worldly sense, and you're missing the point. Every time someone gets up to preach about this and starts talking about how babies are innocent, just put wax in your ears until the sermon is over, and then go back to the reading. Anyone who tells you it's how children are open because they're innocent or because they're pure or they're impressionable, put wax in your ears It's not about being impressionable or open-minded. When you talk this way, you're giving credit to children. And the whole point of being a child in this mashal is that there is no credit due to the child. A child doesn't listen because it's open-minded. A child listens because it has no choice. The disciples are
1: asking, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus does not answer that question. He answers the question, what are the minimum requirements for entering the kingdom of heaven? The children are not the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They're the only ones in the kingdom of heaven. You can't enter unless you're a child. So unless you are obedient and follow the will and submit, only if you are dependent on the one who provides for you, you can't even enter.
0: Whoever then humbles himself as a child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So in verse 3, we're dealing with the criteria for entering the kingdom, and in verse 4, we're dealing with how people are ranked in the kingdom. We're coming around finally to answering Peter's initial question. This is how rank works in the kingdom. The smaller you are in worldly terms, the greater you are in the kingdom, and you have to become small through the cross before you can even enter. And that's essential to understanding this repetition of the crucifixion and the resurrection, because even today when Christians celebrate Easter across all denominations, everyone gets all excited and they talk about how the cross fades away with the hope of the resurrection. But this is anathema, friends. It is to be condemned. It is anti-scriptural to talk this way. How can you say the cross fades away? I'm thankful, every Pascha, as an Orthodox priest, that when I stand on the step to proclaim the resurrection, I am holding a cross in my hand. You never put the cross down. You hold the cross with the light that comes out of the tomb so that you can carry the proclamation of the crucified Messiah out into the world. The cross is the light, because if you can't make yourself small when you're proclaiming the resurrection, then you're talking about the boot of Caesar and your victory, and that is a very serious matter. It's called realized eschatology. People want to realize God's eschatology in human terms to make themselves great, and it's impossible— If in order to enter that kingdom in the eschaton, you have to become, in human terms, completely helpless.
1: We can't forget that this comes in the context of Jesus proclaiming his own end in chapter 17 and the way that he was trying to explain his own fate to Peter. Now that we know that you have to become like a child in order to enter, and you have to humble yourself in order to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's humility upon humility. It's submission upon submission. It is following the will upon following the will. There is no escape from this. The basis of the kingdom of heaven, the basis of this teaching goes back to John the Baptist when he was saying, repent and be baptized. It wasn't repent and be baptized because something magical is going to happen. It's repent and be baptized in order to become humble like these children that Jesus is describing. Why? Because, as John said, and as Jesus said soon after, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you want to be a part of the kingdom, then you submit in all ways in all ways. And this is the destruction of the human ego. This is the end of self-righteousness. This is the end of the boot of Caesar. This is the only way that we can have this kingdom of heaven manifested.
0: And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Simply put, Every time you're confronted with someone who is weak or helpless or who submits in the way that Christ will submit on the cross, you are being confronted with a test. The cross in the gospel story is a test. God doesn't care how you treat him. Jesus is not interested in whether or not you respect him. He chooses to be disrespected so that you would learn how to show respect, Peter. If Christ allows himself to be disrespected by Caesar, why would you then try to disrespect Caesar by asserting your power and rebelling against the tax? You can't do that. When you face the neighbor, you have to face them as Christ out of deference for Christ, as Paul says in Ephesians, which means standing before Caesar, you make yourself smaller. Standing before one under condemnation, you make yourself smaller and receive them as you would receive our Lord Jesus Christ.
1: It's so easy for people to speak in the language of earthly power, and so impossible to speak in this language of submission. I mean, when we say the U.S. government gave us freedom in order to worship the way we want. Now we're going to establish our rights as Americans to worship the way that we want, and no one can tell me otherwise. Whenever someone of faith speaks about rights from the government, it gives me pause. If we are children of this gospel, we don't assert anything. How is it possible to become like a child and assert your rights Explain this to me. How is this supposed to work? When Jesus is doing nothing but preaching submission, how do you claim your rights? When Jesus tells Peter that he has a duty to pay tax to Caesar, how are you proclaiming your rights? This is the opposite of proclaiming your rights. This is the duty to submit to God's law which is to submit to everyone, to everyone. And I like what you preached last week, Father, when you talked about who are the true Christians during this time of pandemic. The early church, the early Christians, would spend time in the city during a time of plague in order to minister to those who were sick, themselves often succumbing to the plague, rather than fleeing to the hills with the aristocracy. Today, those who are closest to being Christian are those who are serving those who are most in need, those who are serving the elderly in the hospitals and in nursing homes, those serving those who are getting sick, those who are taking care of others being sick. And when people rebel against wearing a mask, when it's the least that you could do to protect the least of these, this makes me wonder, what does it mean to them to become like a child? because it certainly doesn't even mean being (laughs) open-minded based on your bad interpretation of this text. It doesn't even follow that. According to the correct interpretation, they must follow orders. They must submit, and they must depend on God alone. And so wearing the mask, taking care of the other, this is what it means to submit.
0: If you're talking about your rights with respect to wearing a mask or getting vaccinated or opening your store or sheltering in place... If you're talking about your rights, then Caesar is your master. It's as simple as that. I have no problem with the small business owner making the case that they should be able to open because of economic strife, especially if there's no government support for them. I think that's rational, and I understand the pressure those folks are under. But for Christians to stand up and say, I'm not wearing a mask because of my faith, or I want my church open and I don't care because I know God won't let the disease spread, you have a God, but it's not the God of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Your God is Caesar because your reference is worldly. And if you think that God needs your prayers, then you are not like a little child. A child knows that the parent doesn't need the child. God doesn't need our prayers. He doesn't need us to open the churches. He needs us to follow his commandments to turn from our wicked path and live. This is what we're talking about, to become so humble and so weak and so dependent that when our parent says, turn, we turn. That when we are asked to put a mask on to safeguard the health of others, we don't debate or fight or claim or make arguments. We say, as Paul does in 1 Corinthians, if there's even the slightest chance that my action— will cause any harm to anyone, I will never do that action again. If the New Testament were written today, Paul would be ordering everyone to put on masks so as not to cause harm, even if there's a slight chance that it has any value. So, Christians, get your head out of the sand and plug your ear back into the scroll and turn from your wickedness, and live as subjects of the kingdom.
1: Father, you and I grew up in the Midwest. If, when we were little kids, we wanted to go out sledding, what did our mom say? Put on your mask. If we didn't want to put on our mask, fine, then you can stay inside. And then we would put on our mask, and we'd go outside, and we'd play. This is what children do. I mean, this is very logical. Anyone who's grown up anywhere cold knows what a child does when the parent says to put on your mask. How much more so when, for the sake of our neighbor, for the sake of keeping those who are in need healthy.
0: But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Two things come to mind our good old pal Jonah, (laughs) but also this basic point in 1 Corinthians that you have no right to cause the weaker brother to stumble. In 1 Corinthians, Paul won't even let you offend the conscience of your weaker brother. With respect to masks, we're talking about the safety of the weaker brother. And in terms of drowning in the sea, we know that Jonah— did not want to take care of the little ones in Nineveh, which included the king, by the way, because there's always the chance that Caesar will hear the gospel and repent, Peter, so pay the tax. Don't romanticize the phrase little ones. Anyone can become a little one by submitting to the gospel of the kingdom. But imagine the severity of the condemnation to be drowned in the depths of the sea. There will be no mercy shown towards those who injure the weak in the coming kingdom.
1: This offend is scandalized, and this is a word that we keep hearing again and again in Matthew. It seems to be pulling people off the track, pulling people off the path. If repentance is turning on to the path, then making someone stumble on the path or turning someone away from the path is the worst thing that you can do because you're causing them to apostasize. Now, how do you do this? Well, you entice them with another path, which is another teaching. If there was someone who is humble, who has repented, who is preparing for the kingdom by submitting to everyone, and you present them another teaching, then it's Caesar's teaching— It's Caesar's power. That's the worst thing that you can do. You're now bringing in citizens from the kingdom into this kingdom of yours. These children are the pistevondon, the ones who have trust. If you scandalize them, then you're teaching them that Jesus doesn't have to die. You're teaching them that Jesus doesn't have to suffer. Jesus doesn't have to be humiliated. And guess what? You don't have to be either. You don't have to submit. You don't have to be humiliated. You don't have to die for the sake of the gospel. You can have everything that you want. You don't have to pay the tax. All these things that Jesus has been laying out, whoever scandalizes one of these children is unwinding and taking away from them.
0: Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father.